people are your best asset. They're the point of difference that no competitor can copy. And that allows you to make a difference in what you do. So, yeah, I think that's really key to me. Hello and welcome to the Leader Insights series, the platform designed to uncover the secrets to career success and gain real insight from senior figures across the food and drink industry. I'm Jonathan O'Hagan. My special guest today is Elizabeth Langley-Jones. Having graduated from Leeds University, Elizabeth joined Nestle on their graduate scheme with a focus on R&D. A short time later, she was hired by Barry Calabau, the world's leading manufacturer of high-quality chocolate. Having quickly established herself in the commercial function and after reaching the heady heights of UK sales director, Elizabeth grabbed a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to move to Singapore to head up the APAC region, developing places like Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, amongst others. At the beginning of 2020, she was snapped up by CSM Bakery Solutions, an international leader in the baking industry. Elizabeth sits on the European management team and is the vice president for modern trade and food service across Europe. Elizabeth, it's a pleasure to have you on. Welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for a very uh, pleasant introduction. Did you like that? That was good, wasn't it? It was good, yes. <laughs> it made me feel that I'd achieved a lot already in my career. <laughs> well, you have, you have, absolutely. Well, listen, I'll, I'll, let's, let's dive straight in. Um, I, think, I think first things first, yeah, what, what attracted you to a career in the food industry and, and why? Well, to be honest, Jonathan, I sort of fell into the food industry. My degree was actually in pharmacology. And during my time at university, I often um, took the opportunity to do um, jobs in the summer. And instead of just doing sort of the usual waitressing, etc., I often um, joined, took temporary contracts at local businesses. And just by chance, several of them happened to be food companies. And from the observations I had from those roles, it really showed me that there was a huge diversity in activities within a food-based business. And for me as a scientist, I actually found that quite fascinating in that it was a, a way that you could use science and the thinking and the scientific approach, but in a very practical and impactful way in, in something that we all hold dear. So it was really the diversity that attracted me then to the food industry. Um, and so f- from that insight, I then started to apply for graduate programmes when I left university, very specifically in the food industry. So, yes, for me, it was really I could apply the science knowledge I'd gained. Every day was different. And also, you know, who doesn't like food? It's, you know, we're very lucky in that, you know, food is something that we're always going to need. And, you know, from a security perspective, I thought that was a good career choice, uh, you know, for the long term. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And what was the appetite like? Um, I don't want to say back then because it makes you, yeah. <laughs> makes you sound old, but you know what I mean? What, what was the appetite back then like for these graduate schemes with businesses like Nestle? Because they have, they have dipped a little bit in recent years, but how easy did you find it back then to transition into a business like Nestle? Um, it was a challenge, to be honest. You know, I'd always been very successful in my educational career, but I can always remember my first manager at Nestle because, uh, yeah, it was all it was a shock going into the world of business and making that adaptation from, you know, educational life into the food industry. Mm. I mean, competition was really, really fierce at the time to get a job, and I felt very lucky. Um, but lots of the schemes were very different as well. The good thing about the 
Nestle scheme was you had several placements, but within a functional specialism. Um, other schemes were very much orientated that you had lots of experience in different functions. So both had advantages and disadvantages. But yeah, the, it was very competitive, but it also gave me a great start in that, you know, in a company like Nestle, as you'd expect, you had a great training program. And as a graduate, you got a lot of opportunities and exposure that most employees don't get. And, you know, I was always thankful for that opportunity. And certainly that first step really set me up for a a later career. It always made people stand up and look at my CV, I believe. Yeah, it's a good point you make, actually. You know, there's certain businesses that have a lot of gravitas and brand power, you know, Nestle, and there's a few others, isn't there, that it does make you stand up and think, right, they must have had some good good grounding, good training in the industry. Um, Was it just R&D that you stayed in when you were at Nestle or did you get a bit of exposure to to the commercial function? Um, No, I was purely in R&D. So I had several roles. I did like product and um, process technology. Um, I had a role as a packaging technologist looking after their co-manufacturing business. So it was really functionally specialised. And interestingly, yes, you came across other functions and commercial functions, particularly on the R&D side, marketing and sales. But actually, I, at that point, I never wanted to be a salesperson. Um, I had no aspirations to have a co- commercial career, should we say. Um, but that was purely out of naivety. I hadn't really realised, you know, what a commercial career could look like. And probably I was, you know, at that young stage in your career where you maybe don't understand what you're what you're good at and you know that comes with working and trying and you know a, a bit of a realization about your capabilities as well yeah yeah well you, you've segued perfectly Elizabeth to my next question which is uh, <laughs> what do you believe's contributed to you getting to where you are today what are the things that you believe you know attributes traits that have led you to to success Ooh, maybe three things. I think I've always been a believer in, in sort of hard, hard graft. And what I mean by that is really getting into the details or getting into the weeds of a problem and being, being willing at whatever level you have to really try and understand, you know, the problem, the people that are involved and take the time to understand. Um, so I think that's always um, meant that, you know, people have enjoyed working with me on a team. I think the other one would be um, emotional intelligence as well. I I think um, I've got good ability to read situations, understand different perspectives. And particularly when looking at team management, I think that's invaluable because it's often being able to read the unsaid things and, and the dynamics in a team and understanding what makes people tick that really helps you, you know, build great teams. So I think that emotional intelligence has helped me become a better leader. Mm-hmm. also just being honest and truthful to yourself and you know I very much have the feeling that people employ me um, to have an opinion and therefore you know I'm not afraid to share that you just have to make sure that you do it in a constructive way and that you know you're motivated by the right reasons for you right. know bringing opportunities bringing bringing criticism but yeah for me that's really important being in a business that values your opinion and gives you that freedom to operate yeah there's some really good points there i think the emotional intelligence bit is it's a hot topic at the moment it's it's grown i suppose in its uh, level of importance in the hiring process a lot over the years you know i i partner with a, a business called mcquaig and certainly from kind of mid-level up now it's it's a fact of people 
don't want to ignore that emotional intelligence piece. It's a big part of successful business and creating successful teams, I think. So no, that's interesting. So moving on to leadership. I mean, I've known you for a while, Elizabeth. I've always, always heard really good things about you as a manager, as a leader. What do you believe good leadership looks like in general? But also, what does good leadership look like in 2020, this year of all years? Yeah, well, I think the things that, um, yeah, what is good leadership? I don't think there's there's some specialisms of this very unusual year, but really for me, the, the, the traits of good leadership are the same. I mean, one of the, one of, you know, my real fundamental things is that you lead by example and how you act either positively or negatively really impacts your perception as a leader. And yeah, that's something I hold very dear. It's about doing, you know, doing the right thing, doing what you say and not expecting anyone else to do something that you wouldn't be willing to do yourself. I think there's been a real change in in organisations and, you know, even in some of the businesses I've, I've worked in over my career in that, people are really being begun to be thought about like an asset. You know, people are your best asset. And then as a manager, as a leader, you really need to value and develop them as if they were a physical asset in your business. You know, we invest in production capability. We invest in maintenance for our physical assets. And really, I think we've got a responsibility as leaders to really, you know, invest and develop our people in the same way. And you know, I, I fundamentally believe they're your number one business asset. They're the point of difference that no competitor can copy. And that allows you to make a difference in what you do. So, yeah, I think that's really key to me. I think a leader, you need to be able to um, build a vision and values. So, you know, it's about setting the path of direction, being clear on how you expect people to act, but not being too prescriptive. So, you know, give people the freedom to operate, you know, it brings creativity, agility, and diversity to plans. And those plans are better and stronger when built together with different approaches and ideas. So with that freedom to operate, I think you also build a huge loyalty from a team. So I think they're the fundamental things for me. That's brilliant. I I really love what you said there. People are your best asset. They are your point of difference that no one can copy. That's that's brilliant. Yeah, I've never heard that. Uh, they're your point of difference that no one can copy. It's very true, actually, isn't it? Because yeah. people can replicate a product, a Me Too style product, but actually they can't replicate your people. And I think, what was it Richard Branson said? Train, train your people well enough that they can leave, but treat them well enough so they don't want to. And it yes. is about investing in people because they are your greatest asset. And you were saying about clear direction, freedom, that kind of you feel brings back value from people yeah maybe just to build on that Jonathan I I think one of the other things that you can do as a leader that's important and I think it's even more important in this year with all the uncertainties and challenges that we have in business is don't be afraid to fail so create an environment where people are able to fail and learn and get better and stronger because unless you build that freedom to fail people aren't courageous and won't try in the first place. So I think that's a really important thing to allow your teams and your business to push the boundaries of what's possible. I call it, yeah, what is the power of possible? Yeah, that's a really good point. Do you think your style or the people you work with, Elizabeth, has it changed this year with everything going on around COVID? Has it had to adapt? Have you had to treat people 
differently? I'll be honest, I've started in, back in a new organisation in COVID. And so it's been very difficult to connect with my teams. And I think for me, the because I physically haven't been able to meet many of my colleagues and um, counterparts across Europe. Mm. Um, so in that sense, you very much have to have a lot of faith that, you know, they are being open and transparent with you because you have no frames of reference. But again, I think that really relates back to how you present yourself as a leader, that you're transparent with them, you deliver good and bad news, and you expect them to do the same in return. I've certainly had a lot more Zoom calls than I've ever had before in my life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's an element of screen fatigue, isn't there, with a lot of people right now. But coming back to your point around emotional intelligence, I think certainly what I've observed amongst a lot of leaders is they've had to be a bit more in tune with how people are internally how they're feeling we're all working more remote than ever before and people value just that check-in every now and again whether it's a Friday afternoon conference call with colleagues I've heard about people setting up bingo amongst their team on a Friday do you know what I mean all those touch points that just even though things are tough right now, just keeping people's spirits and levels of motivations up. And it's an opportunity to build that employee-employer relationship, I believe, anyway. Um, I've seen it both sides, sadly. I've seen it where companies have done the bare minimum and you know, employees feel disenfranchised from their companies. They haven't been treated the best. But equally, I've, I've seen it where companies have gone way over and above and um, they've built really strong bonds which when all is said and done will be key really so yeah I certainly believe that like the team that plays together stays together I think it's like a family that eats together (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know it's it's really key that people are socially connected as well with their colleagues so that they have you know a coach or a mentor or someone that they can talk to when times are tough and you know sometimes that's you as their boss but often it's their counterparts or making sure that those informal networks that give us all the emotional support and you know pick us up when we have a challenging day remain in place and you know I think also as a leader you sometimes have to you know expose that vulnerability in yourself as well so that people feel open to come to you you know and I've been honest with my teams there's been days when I've been out of the office for a long period of time and you haven't had that connection and yeah you need that pick me up or you know informal conversation to yeah realize let's move forward now. Yeah. And do you, Elizabeth, have career mentors or people you can garner advice from, take counsel um, from? Have you got those sort of figures in your career as you've developed? Yes, I've been lucky enough. I've had a few that have really made a difference. I mean, I worked with some coaches and training coaches when I was at Barry Calibo, who I built, you know, really strong personal bonds with. And certainly you were able to call them up and gain direction. Uh, My boss now at CSM, John Lindsay, you know, he's always been very useful as a patriarchal type leader to give advice and direction. So I have been very lucky. And I think actually one of the the biggest things was you mentioned my uh, my time in Singapore. What Singapore allowed me to do was also to widen my network to people that were in other industries because as an expat, you came across people in the oil industry, in the banking industry, and you have a lot more diversity in terms of your business contacts. And that's really been very useful to, you know, maybe also stretch outside of your industry and see what's happening or, or what other people's challenges are and particularly when you talk to leaders in other industries. Yeah, it's the same problem, different product, I'd say. 
Yeah, no, interesting. And probably an obvious answer right now, but what's the biggest challenge in your career, <laughs> career life, if I can word it that way? What's the, what's the issue that keeps you awake at night at the moment, Elizabeth, would you say? Yeah, well, I think like most business leaders, it's the uncertainty of Corona and how we navigate yeah, a very, very uncertain business environment. And particularly for me, that's about how I'm, as a sales leader particularly, is how I make sure I'm continuing to motivate and connect with my teams and how I'm helping them to find opportunities in their market. Because let's face it, the world is in quite a bad place. And um, But with, with a burning platform, it can bring great opportunities. So how can we really, yeah, amongst what could be a very doom and gloom scenario, take a positive thought and think how can we change how can we get more agile or how can we adapt to get the best out of a bad situation you know find a competitive advantage but that's probably the biggest thing and I'm very conscious that you know we've got this dynamic with corona that we've all probably had teams who've been on furlough we've had people back in the office there's been very much high workload demand in many industries that maybe been put on smaller groups of people as well and how do we make sure that we don't burn out our people when they've got a lot of other stresses in their life you know maybe managing children at home um, you know sick relatives you know all those really human elements um, in their lives yeah we're all having to work harder for less aren't we both from a work perspective personally it, it, life feels tougher than it should do right now but it will pass and someone said something to me the other day which I, I, I quite liked the thought process that um, it, it's really a reshaping with mm. everything going on right now it's it's reshaping in in lots of different senses but if you view it that way great things can come out of it you know there's opportunities that have been created um, we'll, we'll hopefully all be the better for it when we when we come out the other side so just in conclusion what advice would you give Elizabeth to people either starting out in a career in food and drink or maybe they're already in the industry but they're working towards a a career like yours I think my biggest advice would be move job functions because you know it's really helped me have experience in different functions and you really understand how the industry is put together and the the critical factors so you know I started in technical I'm now in in sales you know another natural one would be a a position in marketing you know don't be afraid to try those functional moves but I think if you can do it earlier in your career when you're less senior it's far easier and probably far more valuable so and you know it's something I didn't do enough I did it by chance and I wish I'd done more of it now because at a more junior level, you have the opportunity to to learn and you will have investment in yourself. Whereas the more senior you get, you're immediately expected to deliver. And in certain functional areas, that's very, very difficult to make that change at a later date. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, move around as much as possible. Don't be afraid of lateral moves. I know when you're young, you want to move up the ladder, you want to get paid more, you know, you want the, you want the kudos of that big job title. but yeah, a wise word would be to move around when you're young um, yeah. and maybe more junior. That's really good advice because it's often something I encourage people to do. You know, I always give the example that some of the best marketing directors I know, they've been in sales. And equally, some of the best sales directors I know have been in marketing. And it's that principle yeah. of move around within reason, obviously, yeah. expose yourself to different departments because everyone's got different skills and passions. And 
just by gaining that experience in different disciplines, you'll, you'll find a home, you'll find what you really excel at. But by exposing to different departments, it'll, it'll make you more skilled, um, especially if you've got aspirations to be a, a leader in a business such as yourself. You know, you'll understand what an R&D department will look like versus someone who hasn't even stepped foot in a you know an innovation lab or R&D environment so no that's really good advice yeah anything else yeah I've probably got two other things that would come to mind I think build your network as well and I think that's more and more important now and it's something that particularly I learn in Asia your network is everything but and I don't mean by that link you know go on to LinkedIn and and you know, have many, many, many different contacts, you know, really try and find a couple of key people who you can relate to, who can add value as a sponsor or as a coach or a sounding board, you know, going back to your question that you asked me about who had I had in my career that had really helped. I think, you know, really think about that, that network. It's not about the number of people you have, but it's the quality and the difference in skills that they can bring. Um, and then finally, if it's not slightly scary, then it's probably not the next job move. And I can tell you now that most of my roles, I've always gone through that valley of fear thinking, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm scared. I'm a failure. And I think unless you challenge yourself and put yourself in that situation, as vulnerable as it can make you feel, you won't be able to progress. You have to come through it. And then you look back and think, oh, actually, you know, I, I did do it. I did a good job. I achieved this. And this is what I learned from it. I think that's a really, really good point. It's comfort zone stuff, isn't it? You know, we all learn the most when we're thrown out of our comfort zone. And I, I see it a lot because of my day-to-day work where, you know, people do make that transition up the career ladder and you can sense that there's a bit of apprehension. But, you know, six months, nine months, 12 months on, the confidence that you gain from replicating success in a bigger role or a new environment. It's amazing, really, you know, moving jobs is very rarely about money. (laughs) It it builds you as an individual in terms of your confidence. And I, I think people who know that, you know, when they get that, they do very well in their career. But if you let that fear, if you let that fear take over, it can stop you making some really good job moves, can't it? So it's a good point. Um, I love the network thing. I think you're absolutely spot on. Again, the value, and, and I have this myself. I've had people over the years that I will, you know, get take advice from, get counsel for, call it what you will, mentors or whoever. There should be a network of, of people who are advocates, people that you can trust, who you can um, just stick close to, really. I think that's really important. And especially at the moment, you know, we're, we're we're at a period of time where, you know, hiring is down versus the amount of people sadly hitting the job market. And I think there's a lot of people who wish they'd perhaps worked on their own personal network a bit harder in previous yeah. years. So I think that's a, a really important takeaway. Well, listen, thank you so much, Elizabeth. There's some really, there's some nuggets in there. Some nuggets. I especially, <laughs> like, especially like your point. People are your point of difference. No one can copy. Uh, that's brilliant. I'm going to get that... Um, I'm going to get that plastered on the wall. <laughs> I think that's as long brilliant. as I get a sales commission done. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, no, well, listen, thank you so much for your time. And well, um, listen, we'll speak again soon. Thank you. All right, thank you.